I Love the View, Episode 6. Mr. Reagan. This time, I kind of actually do love the view. You guys may remember that a little while ago, Donald Trump was holding a fundraiser here in Los Angeles. Eric McCormick, the actor from Will and Grace, tweeted out that The Hollywood Reporter should release a list of the names of the attendees so that he would know the names of everyone in Hollywood that he would then refuse to work with. Apparently, Eric McCormick has no ability to tolerate anyone whose political views differ from his own. You know, I remember back when I was in high school in the 1990s, everything about the left was supposed to be tolerance and open mindedness. Now, I know it's obvious that that's ancient history, but I don't think that the death of this aspect of leftist ideology has ever been better illustrated. Deborah Messing, Grace from Will and Grace, then reiterated Eric McCormick's sentiment in her own tweet. Essentially, certain powerful Hollywood players are interested in blacklisting conservatives from Hollywood. Those of us who live here, of course, already know this, but Usually, the authoritarian practices of the Hollywood elite are not so publicly expressed. Many on the right noted the irony of this attempted blacklisting, considering that the most famous Hollywood blacklisting in history occurred in the 1950s by Joseph McCarthy, and this was against the radical left. Congress revived the House Committee on Un-American Activities. In 1947, the committee investigated Hollywood, factory of America's imagination. Ten witnesses, the Hollywood Ten, defied the committee's right to ask about their beliefs. The Ten were imprisoned. With hundreds more, they were blacklisted. Their livelihoods taken away. Just about everybody in Hollywood knows this history because they love to bring it up in order to show just how evil conservatives are. But, you know, I I mean, I suppose it's possible that these two actors are just ignorant of this particular history. Most of Hollywood was silent about this insane attempt to persecute conservatives. But Whoopi Goldberg was not. Will and Grace, Deborah Messing and Eric McCormick are calling on The Hollywood Reporter to print a list of all the attendees of a Beverly Hills fundraiser for you-know-who, so they know who they don't want to work with. They say that the public has a right to know. Is that true? I happen to be against that kind of thing. I, yeah. I, I do believe that you should know if a company gave a lot of money to to uh, uh, Trump in this mm-hmm. particular year. And, you know, you can, you can say, no, I'm not going to buy uh, that two-by-four from that company. Mm-hmm. Right. But when it's individuals, I think that then you're starting to endanger that person's life. So I don't approve of that. Mm-hmm. If Deborah right. looks them up and it's already a matter of public record, That's her right why to aren't do. you um, proud of your support? If you're proud enough to pay the money and donate, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not condoning any violence against anyone. But, but if you're but proud enough to donate, yeah. then, then... Listen, why not? last time people did this... Yeah. <clears throat> People ended up killing themselves. Yeah. Yeah. This is not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Okay? Listen, your your yeah, idea of who you don't want to work with is your personal business. Do not encourage people to print out lists because the next list that comes out, your name will be on, and then people will be coming after you. No one. You we nobody. We had something called the blacklist, and a lot of really good people were accused of stuff. Nobody cared whether it was true or not. They all, they were accused and they lost their right to work. You don't have the right in this country. People can vote for who they want to. That is one of the great rights of this country. You don't have to like it. 
But you, we don't, we don't go after people because we don't like who they voted for. We don't go after them that way. We can talk about issues and stuff, but we don't print out lists. And I'm sure you guys misspoke when you said that because you, it sounded like a good idea. Think about it. Read about it. Remember what the blacklist actually meant to people and don't encourage anyone, anyone to do it. Whoopi Goldberg actually came to our defense. <laughs> now, I disagree with a lot of what Whoopi Goldberg says. However, I have found over the months of watching the show that we're not always that far apart on certain issues. In fact, she has said several things at her time on The View that I have found to be shockingly reasonable. Now, we have many points of difference, but the biggest one, I suppose, is our perspective on Donald Trump. Whoopi Goldberg hates Donald Trump so much that she refuses to say his name. <laughs> this intense hatred appears to have blinded her to any kind of objectivity with regard to the president. And I believe that it has disrupted her ability to think rationally about politics in 2019. That said, she also defended Liam Neeson earlier this year when Hollywood tried to brand him as a racist. And she has said a few other reasonable things about other social issues facing the country. Now, make no mistake, most of her positions are typical left-wing nonsense. She's all for banning assault-style weapons. She has, of course, bought into the climate hysteria. She is, for the most part, a standard leftist. However, I will forever be grateful for this one moment, because this is actually a principled response against people with whom she would mostly agree. Not only do I respect such a principled response, but I also respect the fact that she would do so in such a hostile environment. It's one thing to act principled when there are many people around you who will support you. There are very few people, if any, in Hollywood who will support Whoopi Goldberg's principled position here. This was, believe it or not, a brave thing to do. And I applaud her. But don't worry, the rest of the video will be back to the usual ridicule and abuse of the ladies of The View. <laughs> now, this is going to be an unusual episode of I Love The View because it's only going to be about one episode of the show. This was an episode from last Tuesday, September 17th. This episode was just so rich with material, I felt like it should be its own full episode. I did watch all the episodes from last week, but I'm going to put my commentary about those episodes in a second I Love the View episode uh, here coming out maybe tomorrow or the next day. So you guys are getting a two-for-one special. And speaking of two-for-one specials, let's talk again about the Donald Trump coin. Any way you look at it, the 45th president of the United States has made a massive impact on the world stage in the three years he has been in office. He has bravely ventured into areas that presidents before him have shied away from. He's tackled Kim Jong-un on home territory. That's a first. He's taken on China in a trade war. That's a first. He recently offered to buy Greenland for the United States of America. That's a first. And not just overseas. Here at home, too, there have been several firsts. Straining the swamp. That's a first. Massive deregulation. First. And let's not forget the beautiful wall. That is a first. With their best-selling Trump 2020 Freedom 0.999 fine solid silver coin and United We Stand 10-ounce solid silver bullion bar together in one package at a special discounted price. And actually, let me show you this real quick. This is the Trump coin, which is... Very cool. I love this. Quite a nice little collector's item. And then this is the United We Stand 10 ounce. And 10 ounce is a good weight. 
It feels very cool. It's a cool thing to have. I love the American flag on the back. All right, so this is the most popular combo for this company, and you're getting 11 ounces of silver for an incredibly low price. It's the perfect combination for a perfect president. Go to Trump2020.com and use the code MrReagan25 and you'll save $25 on this incredible package. With the price of silver skyrocketing over the last 90 days, this is a can't-miss offer. All right, back to ridiculing the crazy ladies of The View. Hey, welcome back. So, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren is gaining ground in the polls, and apparently yesterday she packed them in at a huge rally here in the city, in New York City, where she told the crowd that uh, the time for her progressive measures is now. Take a look. We win when we stand up for what is right. She also uh, got a key endorsement yesterday from the Progressive Working Families Party, who apparently backed uh, Bernie in the last election. so what do you think? I happen to love Elizabeth Warren. Mm-hmm. I think she would I make I think she would make a magnificent president. Mm-hmm. And I think that this whole talk about that she's too far to the left it's a lot of hooey, frankly. Mm. I am the pro- the poster child. You are Joy Bay. I am the poster child <laughs> for what they call democratic socialism. Unemployment insurance saved me many times. I've been fired several times. <laughs> Social security Medicare, I have them both now. Thank you very much. Mm. I went to college for free. I have a master's degree that they paid for. Mm -hmm. Now, that's what democratic socialism is. Mm -hmm. It's not that the government is going to own all of the industries. Yeah, like that's going to happen in my lifetime, anybody's lifetime. Jeff Bezos is going to give over Amazon to the government. That is the crazy socialism. She's talking about helping people. Whereas Donald Trump wants to rip every safety net out out of everybody's Hands. She's a, she's and bring everybody to bankruptcy. Oh, Joy Behar, the most annoying, ignorant, loudmouth on daytime television. This is typical Joy Behar. This is actually a beautifully concise expression of her most sinister ideas. First, she mischaracterizes democratic socialism. Secondly, she tries to scare people into believing that Donald Trump wants to take everything from you. <laughs> Joy Behar characterizes democratic socialism as the government helping people when they need help. But this characterization fails to recognize that these government efforts are merely a redistribution of other people's money. And oftentimes they're helping people who don't need it at all. And she actually presents a perfect example. She has just acknowledged that she herself is benefiting from government assistance. She's a millionaire. She's on national television with probably the easiest job in the world, and she's currently benefiting from government assistance. Now, I know it's not a popular position to restrict Social Security benefits in any way, but I would totally be for restricting government benefits from Joy Behar. She says that the government helped her when she was unemployed because she got fired a lot. First of all, unemployment insurance is not government welfare. She clearly doesn't understand how that system works, but furthermore... I don't think Joy Behar should have been given a safety net in this way because I imagine that she was not fired unfairly. I imagine that she was an insufferable bitch. She was probably fired for good reason. Perhaps if she had not had that safety net, perhaps she would have then adjusted her behavior and simply been a better employee. She also claims that the government paid for her college. 
Why? Also, at the time Joy Behar went to college, and I imagine it must have been like the 1920s or something, she's quite old. College tuition was extremely low. My father, for instance, paid his entire tuition all the way through college himself without any scholarships or grants. That's almost impossible today. Free college for everyone would be insanely expensive. But more importantly, Joy Behar didn't even use her degrees. She has a bachelor in sociology and a master's in English, and yet she became a stand-up comedian, and now she's a loudmouth socialist propagandist on The View. Her government-paid-for college education is a perfect example of somebody getting government assistance who doesn't need it. If she is the poster child for democratic socialism, then she's illustrating Democratic socialism as pure government waste. Democratic socialism, as she would characterize it, paid for two college degrees that she didn't use, disincentivized her from being a respectful and hardworking employee, and is now paying her government benefits despite the fact that she's worth $12 million. She's basically saying that the U.S. federal government allowed her to be a lazy cow her whole life, and now that she's lucky enough to become a millionaire, it's paying her again with other people's money that they worked hard for. Just ask yourself this question. Are you happy that you are working hard every day in America? You're paying taxes. And then that tax money is going to pay for unused college degrees for people like Joy Behar to pay out welfare to poor employees like Joy Behar, to pay Social Security to millionaires like Joy Behar. Your money, your tax money is going currently to Joy Behar. Great, Joy Behar. You be the poster child for democratic socialism. And you know what? Her definition is wrong anyway, but even her deceptive characterization of democratic socialism, if implemented, these policies would bankrupt the country. Furthermore, she claims that this new kind of socialism prefaced with the word democratic is a lighter, crisper, more refreshing version of the old Soviet-style socialism. It's not that the government is going to own all the industries, she says. Mm -hmm. It's not that the government is going to own all of the industries. But Democrats in Congress have openly advocated the nationalization of huge tracts of private land throughout the country. And Bernie Sanders has personally advocated for the nationalization of all U.S. oil companies. He once wrote, I would urge you to give serious thought about the eventual nationalization of these gigantic companies. It is extremely clear that these companies owned by a handful of billionaires have far too much power over the lives of Americans to be left in private hands. The oil industry and the entire energy industry should be owned by the public and used for the public good, not for additional profits for billionaires. So, yeah, the nationalization of some industries is certainly on the table in the minds of some of these socialists that Joy Behar insists merely want to help people who need government assistance. One last thing about this. It's estimated that 50% of welfare is fraudulent. 50%. Five zero. <laughs> I mean, I actually love the idea of welfare. I love the idea of that if some guy is a bit down on his luck, our society can pool some money together and maybe help that guy out. And ideally, that guy would be enormously grateful. But most of the time, that's not really how welfare works anymore. We are in dire need of welfare reform. And this should not be an expansion of government. It should be a contraction of government. Isn't that the basis of the country? Mm-hmm. Is that we all don't think the same way, and yet we all used to gather around whoever won for the betterment of the nation. Mm-hmm. I think what's hard now is people are having a hard time gathering around mm-hmm. the person who's presently in because they're not sure about 
whether it's good for the nation. I don't think people are not going to have a, a choice, but I will also remind people, you have a while yes. before you have to make right. your decision. You don't have to make it tomorrow. Keep listening to what people say. Yeah. That's, that's my suggestion. Go ahead. That- <laughs> wow. Whoopi Goldberg is on fire. I agree with everything she just said. She is absolutely right. The country should get behind the president as a matter of patriotism. The problem with Barack Obama was that there was this sense amongst Republicans that Obama's international diplomacy favored other countries over the United States. There was a sense that Obama was less interested in helping Americans and more interested in establishing a legacy of international cooperation on issues like climate change. But despite our misgivings about him, there are few conservatives who would say that they hoped for a lingering recession so to get Barack Obama out of office. Some prominent leftists have said such things about Donald Trump. I'm not wishing for a recession, but if, it, yeah, if the I. farmers want to keep touching well, the Well, you should stove, re- wish for a recession, because that will definitely get him really, unelected. Okay, but Bill, you don't really want a recession. I really do. We have survived of- many recessions. Okay. We can't survive knock, another Donald knock, Trump term. You're going to knock lower middle-income people out of work. I do. Put him at the ballot box in the intellectual marketplace of ideas. So you don't, you don't want to knock those people out of work. But to Tom's point, the tariff I don't want to. tariff is actually well, paid by you have to make short term pay. Remember everybody be yes. long term right. structure. You have a constitution. Thank you very much. Despite our concerns about Barack Obama's motives and intentions, we still wanted him to succeed in advancing the interests of Americans. Whatever you think of Donald Trump, it's clear that he is attempting to act in the best interest of American citizens. Even if you disagree with his policies, an appreciation of that should encourage all Americans to stand behind and support Donald Trump. Instead, they're now trying to impeach him. Whoopi Goldberg then goes on to encourage her viewers to educate themselves more on politics. Now, I'm not going to give her too much credit. I think that she believes that the reluctance of leftists to get behind Donald Trump is justified. I think when she says it's hard for people to get behind Donald Trump, she's actually talking about herself. And I also think that she fully expects that as people get better educated about politics, they will be less likely to vote for Donald Trump. So although I agree with everything that she said, I think that the truth of her words is more a product of naivete than wisdom. There is really no excuse for not supporting Donald Trump currently. And if Whoopi Goldberg had any sense of the statistics around education and politics, she would realize that the better educated people are about politics, the more likely they are to be conservative. Take a look at this graph. All right, let's have a look at this. Are conservatives more knowledgeable about politics? People voting conservative in the election had a greater level of political knowledge than labor voters. This is obviously a British poll from September 2017. So the red here is the Labor Party. That's the leftists. And the blue are the conservatives, a little bit backwards, apparently, on this graph than it is in American politics. So the people who scored much below average on a test of political IQ uh, were mostly leftists, like by a huge margin. And um, there weren't really that many conservatives that voted below average. But if you look at the much above average, the very bottom line there, uh, conservatives massively, massively beat uh, uh, the leftists. And actually, all the way down as it goes from below average to above average, you see that line growing. Conservatives, it, it looks like, do way, way, way better on tests about uh, politics. And that's not just this graph. It's not just, it's, this is not just in Britain. They've done polls like this in the United States, and every poll that I've ever seen like this shows that conservatives 
are far better educated about politics than leftists. So, as I said, the better educated people are about politics, the more likely that they will be conservative. Unless, of course, the majority of their political education comes from The View. (laughs) I've heard some interesting ideas, you know, uh, our friend Mr. Yang. I talked to somebody else who gave me Someone a better idea oh. than, than, than even he has. A month? Yes. What my friend said is maybe the four big companies in America, the four big American companies that... Amazon, Facebook, Amazon, Facebook Google, uh, Microsoft, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, almost... The, we're almost trillion-dollar companies. Four Pay up, Apple. They should, give, yeah. they, should, they should give each American two shares every year. It keeps Americans working with their companies, buying their companies and saying, this is what we should be doing. You should be doing a better job or you're doing a good job because I'm part of this. I feel like I have something to say about it. They felt that was a better thing because it would allow people to really work around and see how they fit into the wealth scale. They can buy more if they want to or they can just continue to accumulate it and he said it's a a much better thing it's better for the country because it keeps you know capitalism going it keeps everybody going and everybody is part of all of these companies i kind of i like that and if you don't want to keep it this year you can sell your your share so if it's four if it's each company does two shares every year so that was a that was i i just keep hearing greater and greater ideas i'm just waiting for somebody to say we're going to do this actually this is quite similar to an idea i've had for quite some time i keep saying that if leftists want to redistribute wealth so much okay we will allow you to redistribute wealth but you're not allowed to redistribute the wealth of conservatives you're only allowed to redistribute your own wealth so republicans we get to keep our money and we can give it to whatever charities we want Democrats, on the other hand, you guys are going to be forced to pay more in taxes to fund all of your absurdly expensive social programs. Now, I realize that this is just a silly proposal. I understand that this will never become a system that we employ in America. I mean, after all, everybody would just change their party affiliation to Republican, which I think is actually a pretty hilarious reality when you think about it. (laughs) But anyway, Whoopi's plan is a lot like mine because all of those four companies that she just mentioned are deeply leftist companies. They hate conservatives. So yeah, if they're the ones who are supplementing all the social programs, I actually don't have a problem with that. The problem with the idea is what happens when one of those companies goes bankrupt? What happens when Instagram becomes one of the big four and Facebook fades into obscurity? Would it not be in the best interest of the federal government to artificially prop up Facebook forever? Too big to fail would suddenly become applicable to social media companies. It's not that I think the women of The View are complete idiots. It's just that I think that they are very confident speaking on things about which they know very little. And they speak with an absurd level of confidence. This is very dangerous. There are a lot of people out there who watch shows like this, who know even less than the ladies do about politics, or maybe about the same, but they hear these ladies speak with this confident attitude, and they're tricked into believing that they know what they're talking about. Now, I do not have a degree in macroeconomics. 
I cannot present to you all of the potential ramifications of adopting Whoopi Goldberg's crazy proposal. But even I can see, just in first hearing about it, some very obvious flaws with the idea. But she goes on national television and talks about this as if it is a brilliant solution. In fairness, I shouldn't ridicule her for expressing the idea. I'm actually a huge proponent of expressing bad ideas. I've had tons of bad ideas in my life. Uh, It's always better to express bad ideas openly and let them get shot down rather than act on them privately and watch them destroy your life. (laughs) So people shouldn't be afraid to express bad ideas. Furthermore, if people are afraid to express bad ideas, they may then be afraid to express good ideas because it's very rare that anyone knows that a bad idea is really bad until they express it openly and have it shot down. So if people are afraid to express bad ideas, that just means that they're afraid to express ideas. And we need people to feel safe expressing ideas. So I say to Whoopi Goldberg, well done in expressing this terrible idea. And at the end of the day, I like where she's going with this. Get the radical left to pay for all their own crazy programs. Leave us conservatives out of it. If you can find some way to get the crazy rich leftists to pay for all your crazy expensive social programs, do it. Welcome back. SNL just fired new cast member Shane Gillis after video of him making racist and homophobic slurs on a podcast were found online. SNL apologized for not vetting him better. Some stand-up comedians are saying he shouldn't have been canned over this. What do you think? We talk about this so much on the show. The cancel culture... Should people be fired? Where do you draw the line? I think everyone's trying to figure out what that line is. For me, it is racial slurs. I think I'm someone that struggles to get past that. I have a sister who's from China. I've seen her at times get emotional when things have been said, and it's heartbreaking. Um, He also said he called it um, nice racism. And he kind of gave a, a, a non-apology apology. I think if you know that you've said something in the past that could be offensive, get ahead of it. If you want to be on SNL, go to people and say, I said this before. I didn't mean it. I apologize for it. I want people to know. And if you hire me, this is going to come out. I, I think we're all tired of people getting these gigs or, you know, tweeting something. And, Maybe he didn't and, know he did anything wrong. He didn't think he said anything wrong. That's the problem. I think we know in today's culture, like if you say a racial slur. This is just a few slur, months ago. He should have known by then. 2018. Yeah, it was in a podcast yeah. from 2018. But I, just get out front. I think ago. we're forgiving. But just get out in front of it and say, this was wrong. I didn't mean this. I know it's going to be offensive to people, but give me a chance. You know, forgive me. I guess Dave Chappelle's not going to apply to SNL because of his, his Netflix special. They still ask him to host, though. Yeah. Well, how come? That would be a double standard, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, he's hosted in yeah. the past and, few years. And, I mean, that sounds like a double standard to me. They're letting this guy not even get the job. Dave Chappelle, who's a big moneymaker now, they'll put on. And he's been, you know, a lot of people felt his Netflix special was very offensive. I'm not saying I do. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that it is a double standard. For what it's worth, Andrew Yang said he shouldn't be fired. And I think they're, yeah. they, yeah. they've become friendly with each other. I just, I don't know how I feel about it because I don't like this cancel culture that's going on. You know, someone is immediately canceled for something that they said last year or five years ago. And, and then I think about what happened with Kevin Hart having to, you know, he, he chose to step down from the Oscars because every time he apologized, people felt that he didn't go far enough or he wasn't apologetic enough. And then you think about Trevor Noah, who also had some issues with some misogynistic tweets um, years before. And and, and had he been canceled from taking over the uh, Jon Stewart's, we would, Mm -hmm. I think, have really missed out on a brilliant genius um, and and he uh, so apologized. How do you know how long to and wait? He apologized. Yeah. yeah. How how do you know? Um, and Trevor, I, I just 
want to say Trevor apologized for his jokes, um, and and he said that uh, you know he he changed his mind and he grew. And and um, does does Gillis have an opportunity to? Did, was he even given an opportunity to? Um, apologize or or reflect. I I just I I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I and and I don't find racist jokes funny. I don't find homophobic jokes funny. But I also am a proponent of free speech. And I think comedians are there to be provocative and push and push. We we've heard comedians roast people, and oh you know God. they're supposed to, <laughs> to do roast. that kind of <laughs> yeah. thing. I, I I don't know how I come down on it. What the hell? is going on. The ladies of The View are kind of making sense a little bit. In fact, the one who I disagree with the most here is Abby Huntsman, and she's usually the only one I ever agree with ever. Even Joy Behar kind of made sense. Ugh, I feel like I'm in the twilight zone or something. Now, I'm sure you all know how I come down on this. Jokes are jokes. If you're going to try to make people laugh, well, that is a positive thing in the world. But actually, in keeping with this topsy-turvy world we seem to be living in here, I'm going to defer to somebody I've been rather critical of in the past, Jim Jeffries, because I thought his observations about this were spot on. Well, we got three sort of rich white guys here. and We're the most hated people in America. Might as well be Exxon board members, but let's continue. You heard, oh, about this, the monologue comedian Shane Gillis got hired as a new cast member of SNL. They immediately fired him about jokes he'd made in the past. Well, this is just cancel culture. The guy shouldn't have been fired. It's just a couple of things back in his history. We're going to go through everyone's history? Or are we going to get rid of every sketch that SNL has done that involves race? Like, I remember John Belushi dressing as an Asian man with a samurai sword. That was the whole sketch. <laughs> or, or, maybe, sketch. or maybe we could have... Bread. What was it? Mike Myers he used to play a Japanese host like this. And if they got the question wrong, they had to cut their hand off. Yeah. And I remember nothing that you did wrong. <laughs> yeah. Did they go back and also try to look at good things that the person might have done, or are they just looking for the bad stuff? Is it you just scroll through, help cat out of a tree, that's not it. (laughs) Help grandmother walk across the street, that's not it. You know, said something on a podcast, there it is. So I I don't get it. And then I don't get if you say something like that, you can't work in a sketch show, but like it's okay from what, he can work in a lumber yard? Yeah. Yeah. I think when I was younger on SNL, when you get hired, the first uh, move wasn't to rifle through your past to make sure you get fired right away. Absolutely right. All right. Let's get back to the harpies. Yeah. I am just frustrated across the board that there aren't more women and people of color in late night comedy in general. I don't understand it. I don't understand what I have to do to get like a woman in regular primetime to host a late night show. What the hell is going on? All of the insane ones made sense, and the two so-called conservatives were the only ones talking nonsense. Meghan McCain wants more women and ethnic minorities in comedy? There are tons of women and ethnic minorities in comedy. What the hell is she talking about? She is literally sitting at a table with two professional female comedians, Whoopi Goldberg and Joy Behar, one of whom is an ethnic minority. The minorities thing, I don't even get that at all. I... There are tons of black comedians, Indian comedians, all kinds of comedians from every race. 
I have zero explanation for why she thinks there are no ethnic minorities in comedy. As for the women thing, maybe the reason that she doesn't notice that there are a ton of women in comedy currently is that none of those women are all that funny. And maybe it's just that all the really heavy hitters in comedy tend to be men. That said, there are female comedians that I currently like. I really like Melissa McCarthy, for instance. I think she is great. And historically, some of the legends of comedy have been women. Since pretty much the dawn of television, there have been dominant women comedians. Look at Lucille Ball, legend. And that was one of the really early hit comedy shows on television. I mean, there is certainly no one in Hollywood restricting super talented, hysterically funny women from being successful comedians. If you want more successful female comedians, Megan, you're just going to have to hope that some female comedians out there become funny enough that they break through into popular culture. Complaining about the lack of successful women in comedy is like, like if I were to complain that there were not enough white men in the NBA. Uh, well, there aren't enough white men in the NBA. I don't get it. I want to see more white guys playing basketball. Okay, well, you're just going to have to wait and hope that some white guys become good enough at basketball that they start to dominate. I wouldn't hold your breath. You know what? Megan McCain saying stupid sh- Maybe this isn't such a bizarre episode after all. And, and late night television is run by men. I've done more pilots than American Airlines, okay? <laughs> I know, I, I have. <laughs> and I never got the job. <laughs> Weirdly, Joy Behar unintentionally backs up my point here. Now, she's trying to reinforce Meghan McCain's point by saying that she acted in a number of television pilots and that all the TV executives that she worked for were men. A TV pilot, for those of you who do not know, is a sort of test episode. If a TV network likes your script, your pitch, a concept for a show, and if they're considering putting it on their TV network, they'll give you money to produce what they call a TV pilot. It's sort of like the pilot light on an old gas heater. It's what gets all the other episodes started. But if your pilot isn't any good, then they won't pick up the show. They will instead pick up a different TV show with presumably a better pilot. Joy Behar is suggesting that although she was hired to act in many television pilots, she never actually got jobs out of it. And I never got the job. (laughs) What that means is that either the pilot wasn't very good and it didn't get picked up or else they did pick up the show but they cut Joy Behar's character or they replaced her with a different actor. Essentially, Joy Behar has reinforced my point that no one is stopping women from becoming successful comedians. She was given many chances to be successful as a comedian in television. If she had been funnier, if she had been a better actress, then she would have probably gotten a role on a TV show. Her problem isn't misogyny in Hollywood. Her problem is that she's not talented. Of course, that is a difficult pill for most people to swallow, and so it's easier for her to blame her lack of success in Hollywood as a comedian on evil sexist men. It's just so funny. I mean, honestly, you you cannot say, I was given all these opportunities to become a comedy TV star, and then say, but I was never actually able to become a comedy TV star, so must be the fault of all those men who gave me all those opportunities. What the hell are you talking about? Honestly, this perfectly encapsulates leftist thinking. This is why Democrats get elected. They basically found a way to leverage people's desire to avoid taking responsibility for their own shortcomings. 
You're not doing well in school? Well, I can see that you're black, so it's probably because your teachers are racist. You haven't got a promotion in the last few years? Well, I can see that you're a woman, so it must be because your boss is sexist, or because you're gay, or you're an immigrant, or because of some other stupid thing. This has actually become a significant problem in this country. When I was a kid in the 80s, I think probably sometimes you did find that occasionally a black guy might not have got a job just because he was black, or a woman might have been overlooked for a promotion just because she was a woman. And oftentimes when these sorts of things happened, the people who were the victims of those things they would have to fight really hard to overcome them. And this made them harder workers. This made them emotionally stronger. And that's not a justification, mind you. That's just an observation. And I make this observation in order to contrast it with the current situation. Today, you very rarely see any kind of ethnic discrimination or gender discrimination or anything like that. In fact, you see a hundred times more false accusations than you ever see actual instances of these kinds of discrimination. However, now that this kind of discrimination is mostly eradicated, now people are constantly making a fuss about it. In the 80s, when it was actually still happening, nobody really talked about it. Now that it's ancient history, everybody talks about it all the time. It's bizarre. It's as if there's some kind of collective effort to somehow balance the scales. It's like, well, things used to be bad and nobody said anything about it, so now that things are good, we'll pretend that they're bad and we'll all complain about it because that's what we should have done 30 years ago. And you know what? I think that might actually be what's going on here because we've come so far in terms of leveling the playing field for every kind of demographic. Now people have figured out that they can complain without consequence. And in fact, there's a kind of currency in complaining. Even if you're not a victim, claiming to be one can benefit you. And so I do think that most of the people who progress this victim narrative for the various victim groups, I do think that most of these people know that what they're progressing is it's a false narrative. I think that they probably know that these groups aren't actually being victimized. But I suspect that the thought process is like, since some people in these groups were victimized historically, and even though no one from that group is really being victimized now, we'll just say that they are so that we can balance the scales now. But look, if the average woman now has it better than the average man, what good is it to then give her more at the expense of men who already have less today. The only way to reconcile historic injustices is to go back in time. Taking a toy out of the hand of a little boy and giving it to a little girl does not reconcile the injustice of a man who, 100 years ago, got a job promotion unfairly over a woman. The boy you're stealing from has nothing to do with the man from 100 years ago, and the girl that you're giving the toy to has nothing to do with the woman from 100 years ago. The whole concept of retroactive justice by proxy It doesn't make any sense. And again, I do think that these social justice types, they do understand that their reasoning is flawed. I think that Joy Behar understands that she was not really the victim of sexism in Hollywood. Despite not being a funny comedian, she was given tons and tons of chances to be successful. And when she couldn't hack it as a comedy actress, she was given political shows on CNN and now on ABC. It didn't matter how untalented she was, Hollywood made sure that she was a success. She was taken care of. She should be the most grateful one of all of us in the world, but she isn't because it feels better to dismiss one's own shortcomings and to blame other people instead. And she can justify this in her brain by recognizing that historically maybe some other woman at some point was unfairly treated and so she can justify this lie that she's telling the audience because she's really telling a grander narrative about women historically. This is the mental gymnastics of the left. It's very seductive. Because if you accept this kind of convoluted logic, it allows you to sidestep any responsibility for your own 
failures. All right, now the guests on the show for this episode were the authors of the book The Education of Brett Kavanaugh, which is a book that is regarded by most conservatives that have read it, from what I've seen, as a hit piece against Brett Kavanaugh. The authors on the show here promoted the book as neutral, objective reporting without any kind of agenda. This is the book that was excerpted in the New York Times with regard to a further sexual misconduct accusation against Brett Kavanaugh, but without any relevant exculpatory information. Specifically, the excerpt left out the part of the book that said that the woman who was the supposed victim of this new sexual misconduct allegation, she herself had no memory of this ever happening and was unwilling to be interviewed about it. There was an even further scandal about this new accusation because the guy who leveled the accusation was a left-wing operative who used to work for the Clintons. And this germane information was not only left out of the New York Times excerpt of the book, it was actually left out of the book completely. The women are both a bit weaselly when asked about this, both on The View and in other interviews I've seen, but on Honestly, I'm not really all that interested in any of that stuff. The Brett Kavanaugh thing is old news. I'm really not interested in relitigating it. However, there is one thing that I thought was particularly fascinating that one of these women said during this interview. They're being questioned here not about Christine Blasey Ford or this new accusation, but uh, another accusation by someone by the name of Deborah Ramirez. Her story is that at a party or something, Brett Kavanaugh's junk got shoved into her face Uh, at some point. Anyway, let's watch the clip and I'll explain why I found it particularly fascinating. The New York Times social media team also got a lot of blowback uh, for tweeting that the alleged sexual assault, quote, may seem like harmless fun. Um, They then had to delete the tweet and apologize for it. And Politico is now reporting, Robin, that you wrote that tweet. Was it you that wrote it? And and if so, why not just say it was me and it was wrong? And I drafted this with this in mind to have actually the opposite effect. Mm -hmm. Which is to anticipate those who would say a guy pulling down his pants at a party when they're drunk is, you know, on the spectrum of sexual misconduct. It's not sexual assault. It's not rape. Uh What's the big deal? And to try to put in context Deborah Ramirez's experience Uh and to say, actually, it was a big deal Mm -hmm. and that this can be quite meaningful, depending on where you come from. You know, maybe for me, a New Yorker, I would have said, get that out of my face. You know, she was coming from a very sheltered Catholic upbringing in a lower income um, kind of community. And she was a person of color and she felt like maybe she didn't deserve to be at Yale in the first place. And so having that happen and have people laugh at her and target her Mm -hmm. was actually hugely meaningful and made an impact on her life for the rest of her life. So for those who minimize it and dismiss it. Um, I was trying to help them understand that it had the opposite effect and it seemed yeah. to undermine That's her Twitter experience. Yeah. Yeah. Not everyone comes to Yale equally equipped to navigate that environment. That's- okay, so I get what she was trying to say in the tweet. I have no problem with her tweet at all. What I do have a problem with is that she specifically points out that Deborah Ramirez is a, quote, woman of color. And she was a person of color. And she was a person of color. And she was a person of color. What the F does that have to do with anything. So if you're a woman of color, it is far worse to have some guy's junk thrust into your face at Yale than if you were a white girl. If you were a white girl, I can totally understand people just dismissing this as silly, rambunctious fun. But Deborah Ramirez is a woman of color. And she was a person of color. It's so much harder for her to navigate Yale as a woman of color with all that junk flying in her face than it would be if she were a white woman. Not everyone comes to Yale equally equipped 
to navigate that environment. Seriously, how the hell is that relevant? This is the insanity of the left. This is the problem with reporters like these two women. They are completely blind to their own insanity. I mean, I suppose that most crazy people don't think that they're crazy. And in the same way, I think people with convoluted ideologies probably don't quite understand that their ideologies make no sense. I presume if they did understand this, that they would abandon the ideology. Anyway, I just wanted to point that out. This woman who insists that she's the arbiter of truth, that she is this neutral, objective observer, merely reporting the facts in a balanced and fair way, she is clearly an adherent of the identity politics ideology. And I don't think she intended to reveal that in this interview, but this one slip of the tongue has betrayed her true beliefs. If she believes that a Hispanic woman is more of a victim than a white woman, it makes sense that she probably also accepts that women generally exist within a victim class of their own. Now, I doubt that anybody who watches my show has any illusions about the veracity of these women. <laughs> my brother just sent me a text. New theory. Trump is the whistleblower. <laughs> I love my brother. As I was saying, I'm sure that everybody who watches the Mr. Reagan YouTube channel is well aware that reporters for the New York Times are far-left ideologues. I don't think that any of you are probably going to be swayed by these women to believe that they are, in fact, the neutral, objective reporters that they are pretending to be. However, they sound pretty sincere. In fact, I think that they genuinely believe that they are in fact, neutral, objective reporters. As I said before, I don't think most crazy people recognize that they're crazy. And I think that these women are unaware of how strongly biased they actually are. This is dangerous because when they defend their work, they defend it with a genuine sincerity. And genuine sincerity is very convincing. Because these women are convinced that they are right, because they are convinced that they are neutral and objective, I think that the way they talk about this stuff, they actually come across as honest, or at least that they're trying to be honest. And despite the fact that most of you will recognize the reality of their sinister reporting, there are many, many, many people out there in America, mostly on the left, but also some moderates, independents, borderline types, who will watch them in interviews. They'll be convinced that they're being honest and fair and neutral and objective and all those things. And so, you know, I just wanted to point out that even though I think they're being totally sincere, they still interject this absurd notion of identifying victims on the basis of immutable characteristics. She's a woman of color, and so it's much more difficult for her when a guy shoves his junk in her face. Even for women whom I assume are feminists, this is an insane thing to think. In fact, this could potentially be interpreted as strongly racist. Well, we know Hispanics are emotionally weaker than white people, and therefore, any kind of trauma will be compounded in the Latino race because they're weak. She was a person of color and she felt like maybe she didn't deserve to be at Yale in the first place. Yes. Not everyone comes to Yale equally equipped to navigate that environment. Yes. There's your headline right there, ladies and gentlemen. Authors of the new Kavanaugh book, Total Racists. <laughs> All right, well, that's it for me. And remember, it's not that our liberal friends are ignorant. It's just that...